0: Welcome to Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. And if you're listening to this, then consider yourself a part of the team. Stick around and let's shine a light on all things Appalachia. Today is Friday the 13th. Yes, August. August 13th, 2021. Thank you everybody for tuning into this episode. A couple of interesting articles that I read uh, recently I just wanted to come on and share with you. Although, let's start off with this day in history I thought was really interesting. This day in history, August 13th, 1961, just a little bit after midnight. East German soldiers began laying the groundwork and the uh, um, the uh, barbed wire for the foundation uh, of what would become the Berlin Wall. Uh, it was uh, laid down between uh, Eastern and Western Berlin. Started off with barbed wire to keep people from traveling freely across. Uh, they were losing population; people fleeing East Germany. Uh, In the thousands, and to stop that, the Soviets and East German troops began laying barbed wire on this day 1961, which was the beginning of the construction of the Berlin Wall. And, recent memory, if we can all remember correctly, 1989, uh, that's when that wall came down. Really exciting history. We're going to get into a little bit of Appalachian history in just a couple of moments, but I wanted to share with you a couple of articles that popped up on my radar this week. Uh, one was um, about the removal of a historic dam that uh, restored the Watauga River. This uh, was down in the Appalachian portion of North Carolina. And this was an article by Michaela Walters on Appalachian Voices. Uh, the Fish U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service removed the historic Ward Mill Dam on May 16th in an effort to improve the aquatic habitat of the Watauga River in northwestern North Carolina. Uh, it was a five-day demolition. According to this article, it took five days to, uh, to collaborate and uh, demolish the uh, the uh, the dam that was there across the river. And it actually took place between um, uh, a project between a group of local and national nonprofits, government agencies, uh, the American Rivers, Blue Ridge Resources Conservation and Development, uh, Mountain True, and then Watauga County Soil and Water Conservation District. And of course, U.S. Uh, fish and Wildlife. Uh, according to uh, Gail Lazarus, who was the associate director of, the, of conservation at the National River Conservation nonprofit organization called American Rivers, she said the quickest thing you can do to restore a river is dam removal. And as I went on to read this article, I had I had no idea. Um, I know when we put up dams in uh, locations, it's for A lot for energy purposes and so on and so forth. But I didn't know this, that dams pose risk to rivers in all sorts of ways. According to this article, they increase water temperature, reduce river flow, and block the natural passage of sediment and debris. And then there's the physical barriers that dams create for fish and amphibians. Uh, Ward Mill Dam had been an obstacle for local aquatic life for nearly 120 years, wrote Mountain True High Country uh, Regional Director Andy Hill in an email. Uh, He's actually, Hill, who's with a group called the Watauga River Keeper. I guess he worked with researchers and then uh, folks down at Appalachian State University before the dam was removed just to collect all kinds of data on uh, different species, including the hellbender salamander and uh, other species that were just native to the Watauga River. And according to him, there's a whole list of subsidiary benefits to uh, dam removal, but the biggest benefit would be uh, fish passage. Um, So it also said that the removal of dams can also mitigate risks of drowning and flooding. I really wasn't aware of a lot of that. This is a really interesting article for those who want to go read this. Uh, Some people who are opposed to this uh, said that the dam should have been listed on the National Historic Site um, as a just, just as a testament to what ingenuity can do, uh, according to a member there of the community um, who wrote on a message board in 2020 that the guy who built the dam uh, was a marvel, according to um, historians. Um, actually, what I read here, this was a the life of a guy by the name of Ben Ward who took operating the sawmill in 1932 in this location, and uh, following a flood in 1940, he rebuilt the sawmill and then operated the B.O. Wardhouse and Mill Complex until his death in 1970. Um, The proposed removal of the dam was in 2017, prompted a survey of uh, B.O. Wardhouse and Mill um, by the uh, North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. Uh, ben Ward, actually, when this was built, um, the report said that uh, this had a lot to do with the rise and fall of the lumber industry in that part of Appalachia and that the family's longstanding commitment to providing hydroelectricity for the community. Uh, I didn't know this. I thought this was really interesting. And this is very charitable. Ben Ward, uh, who was the owner of that, supplied power to 15 homes for a dollar a month and free power to uh, one church. Um until the new federal regu- regulatory commission regulations prohibited it, according to an article uh, on the Wata- uh, in, on the Watauga. But I guess after Ben Ward's death, his son Ray received the license to generate hydroelectric power at the dam, and uh, he said it was a great resource for the community. But at some point, it just no longer made technological sense. So really, this this dam was built out of um, kind of a you know unique necessity. And served a lot of good that really could have been put on the historic um list but uh tearing it down actually opened up uh quite a bit of this river now that the dam has been removed according to the article that i read 35 miles of aquatic habitat in the mainstream of the river and uh, 140 miles of stream across the watershed are all now reconnected which i thought was really really interesting but I, you know when you see these small dams, you don't really think about the consequences uh, or the benefits of you know we just recognize them as things that have been there forever longer than I've been alive. and I thought that was quite an interesting article. so it was I learned a little bit from that. Another thing that I read from expatalachians.com was a was really interesting article uh, and this I guess it was kind of you know here in central appalachia, this might be considered a little bit controversial, but yeah, I'm not going to get in the middle of a debate on climate change, but an article relating to that said the coming Appalachian land rush, which I thought was really interesting. Um, as it turns out, um, you know, if you look at uh, some of the weather that's going on around the country, according to this article, and let me give credit to who this was by, Nick Brumfeld. Uh, this was written just uh, last month. It says, turn on the news any day and you'll likely see stories about the increasing effects of climate change unprecedented wildfires in California, sea level rises in Florida, and even subway flooding in New York. While the severity and timing of its effects remain debated, the national conservation around climate change has morphed over the past decade. It's no longer a question as if we can stop it, but how we are going to cope with it. Anyway, long story short, it goes into a little bit of uh, talking about uh, the decline of Appalachian coal and uh, the debates about balancing the region's carbon-based economy with environmental concerns, Um, but it did say that the importance in the coming decade for Appalachia or not just decade but decades in the years to come uh, may be based on another of the region's valuable resources which is our land we have such plentiful land and according to climatologists uh, in this article um, our part of the country you know even though other places they they claim will see Surging temperatures and wildfires, flooding along the coasts. Our part of Appalachia, uh, this part of the country, would remain mostly unchanged and exempted from climate change, which I find ironic since we mine most of the coal here. Um, but you know that you know the uh, purpose of the article is to talk about how there might be a, in decades to come a rush to buy land from those outside of the area to come and buy land here to avoid the consequences of climate change. Because, like most things we consider here in these mountains, we're isolated from a lot of things by being in these mountains. And this may be another thing to think about in 30 to 40 to 50 years down the road. And if that were to come true, um, how, how would outsiders coming in and buying up a lot of our land Displaced, displaced local inhabitants. You know, in our culture and our history, which, which we found a long history, which you know, draws an even deeper purpose to maintaining the balance we have in this region, uh, and not to be exploited by out-of-state interests. And anyway, it was it's a very interesting article uh, for those who want to check this out. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to get in the middle of a I know better get in the middle of a climate change discussion. I'm no scientist anyway. But I thought that was quite interesting. And one other thing that happened, speaking of history and uh, from what what happened this day in history, but let's go back to what happened this month in history 100 years ago. And we've had uh, an episode where we discussed the Battle of Blair Mountain. Uh, But uh, I'll not get into too many of the details, but I thought it was really interesting that we're here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be right up on the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Blair Mountain, which, for those of you who don't know, was the largest labor uprising in United States history. The largest armed uprising since the American Civil War. Now, what had happened is this conflict occurred in Logan County, West Virginia, as part of what they call the Cold Wars, which is a series of uh, battles and labor disputes that took place here in Appalachia in the early 20th century. But at the Battle of Blair Mountain, up to 100 people were killed and many more arrested. The United Mine Workers actually after this saw huge declines in their membership. But the long-term publicity led to some improvements in working conditions, which was a good thing. And uh, the, uh, the loss in membership uh, from the mid-1920s, at one point there were 50,000 strong. Then it went down to probably under 10,000. And they didn't start seeing a rebound in uh, union membership for at least 10 years to the mid uh, 30s. Uh, but anyway, from five days, uh, for five days from late August to early September 1921, some 10,000 armed coal miners confronted 3,000 lawmen and strike strikebreakers uh, who called themselves the Logan Defenders. Uh, who were backed by the coal mine operators and and the owners um, in the attempt to unionize uh, during when the miners are trying to unionize the southwestern west virginia coal fields and uh, when tensions rose between the the workers and the management now the battle uh, actually ended approximately after a hundred after one million rounds were fired and the united states army which is represented by the west virginia army national guard led by William Eubanks, who was a McDowell County native. They intervened uh, by presidential order at the time. They actually were flying in airplanes used in World War One to potentially bomb the, uh, the miners. But here's a little bit of background on this. Since, well, since the founding of the United Mine Workers in 1890, um, coal mines in mingo county which is what we're talking about and its surroundings um hired only non-union workers and they were really really strict with the uh contracts that included union membership as grounds for immediate termination they weren't going to deal with any unions whatsoever but as miners in the area lived almost exclusively in company towns termination meant eviction so you and your family had to go and in 1920, uh, the United Mine Workers president was a guy by the name of John L. Lewis. Sought to end this, you know, this decades-long resistance, like for 30, 40 years, to unionize uh, the area. So he was under a lot of pressure to do so from from miners elsewhere in the country that were participating in the United Mine Workers coal strike of 1919 and from the affected mine operators who are now being undercut by non-union mines in West Virginia. So this unionization push uh, uh, included efforts from uh, what well from Mary G. Harris Jones and she was affectionately known as Mother Jones. Um, she was a school teacher and um, she later, you know, dressmaker, she became a Prominent union organizer and a community organizer, active an activist, and you know she helped coordinate a lot of strikes. Um, but at the age of eighty-three, she gave this fiery speech, and a guy by the name of Frank Keeney, who was president of the local union district, um, was with her. Um, over three thousand Mingo uh, County miners they joined the union and were summarily fired from their jobs. So the coal companies then hired agents from a detective agency to evict the families of the former employees. Now, they actually hired agents from a company called Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency. And even though they call themselves Detective Agency, a lot of times these guys are kind of like hired thugs. So on the May 19th of 1920, these detectives, including a guy by the name of Lee Feltz, arrived in Matewan 1 and connected with the uh, uh, Lee's brother, Albert Felts, and Albert and Lee were the brothers of Thomas Felts, the co-owner and director of the detective agency. So they had those those family ties there. Um, anyway, the agents ended up later walking to a train station to leave town, and uh, Police Chief Sid Hatfeld and a group a group of deputized minors confronted them and told them they were under arrest. Um for, you know, things that they'd done by, you know, forcing people out by my gunpoint. Anyway, um, Albert Phelps reacted and uh, replied that, in fact, he had a warrant for Hatfield's arrest. Well, a guy by the name of Testerman, he, was, he, he ended up running out into the streets after a minor shouted that Sid had been arrested. Hatfield backed into the store and uh, into a store and, and Testerman uh, asked to see a, a warrant. So after reviewing it, Mayor Testerman exclaimed, this is a bogus warrant. So with these words, they just started shooting. Uh, Chief Hatfeld shot the agent from uh, Albert Feltz. Uh, Testerman, the mayor, and Albert and Lee Feltz were among the ten men killed, three from the town and seven from the agency. Well, things got nasty at that point. Um, Let's just fast forward a little bit. A lot of you probably already know the story. But at a rally on August 7th, um, Mother Jones called on the miners to not march into Logan and Mingo counties and set up the Union by force. Accused of someone of losing her nerves, she feared a bloodbath of the battle between you know, the, the Union, which was very lightly armed compared to the other forces that were against them. Yet, uh, feeling Morgan had lied to them, armed men began gathering at Lins Creek Mountain near uh, Marmot in uh, Kanawha County. And that was on August 20th. Four days later, an estimated 13,000 had gathered and began marching toward Logan County. Uh, they were impatient to get the fighting. They were ready to get it on. The miners near St. Albans in Kanawha County uh, commandeered uh, a, Ch- a Chesapeake and Ohio freight train, renamed by the miners as the Blue Steel Special. And uh, they uh, met up uh, with uh, the advanced column of marchers at Danville and Boone County and on their way to a place they called Bloody Mingo. Uh, During this time, uh, Keeney and Mooney fled to Ohio uh, while the fiery guy, by the name of Bill Blizzard, assumed quasi-leadership of the mines and the miners. Um, Now, Bill Blizzard, uh, he was a a union organizer, commander of the miners' army during the Battle of Blair Mountain. And he was also president of the District 17 of the United Mine Workers uh, Association. So just to give you an idea who he was. Uh, skirmishes occurred in the morning August 25th. The bulk of the miners were still 15 miles away. The following day, President Warren Harding threatened to send in federal troops and Army Martin BM, uh, MB-1 bombers. After a long meeting in Madison, the seat of Boone County, the miners are convinced to return home. But the struggle was far from over after spending days assembling his private army. Chaffin would not be denied the battle to end the union attempts at organizing local county coal mines. Within hours of the Madison decision, rumors abounded that Chaffin's men had shot union sympathizers in the the town of Sharples, which is just north of Blair Mountain, and that families, women and children, have been caught in the crossfire. Well, this infuriated the miners, which turned back to Blair Mountain, um, many getting there and stolen and commandeered trains again. Uh, By August 29th, the battle was fully joined. Chaffin's men, though outnumbered, had the advantage of higher positions and more weapons and better weaponry. Private planes were hired to drop homemade bombs on the miners. They even dropped poison gas when used in World War I, which is now outlawed, on the miners. Um, At least one did not explode. It was recovered by the miners. It was used months later to a great effect as evidence and defense during treason and murder trials. On orders from General Bill Mitchell, Army bombers from Maryland were also used for aerial surveillance. One Martin bomber crashed on its return flight, killing three crew members. Well, that's not quite the end of the story. And I'll leave that up to you to, to do some research. But after the battle, 985 minors were indicted for murder, conspiracy to commit murder, accessory to murder, and treason against the state of West Virginia. Though some were acquitted by sympathetic juries, others are in prison for years. The last one was paroled in 1925 uh, at Blizzard's trial, the unexploded bomb that was used as evidence of the government and company's brutality, uh, and he was acquitted. Um anyway, this was uh in the short term is a huge victory for the coal industry and owners and management. And like I said, union membership plunged from over fifty thousand to about ten thousand. And following the Great Depression, actually, when you uh, unionship began to grow, and uh, you had the New Deal under President Roosevelt, uh That's when the UMW fully uh, organized in southern West Virginia at that point. Uh, After World War I, as the coal industry began to collapse again, union mining was no longer financially suitable or sustainable, but um, because of the defeat in West Virginia, the union was also undermined in Pennsylvania and Kentucky. By the end of 1925, Illinois was the only remaining unionized state that could compete with them in terms of soft coal production. But in the long term, we have history to learn from. Uh, it raised a lot of awareness of some of the horrible conditions that the miners faced uh, in working there, some of the uh, unfair um, tactics used against them and their families living in the coal mine or in the coal towns, uh, living on script. It also led to a change in union tactics and political battles to get the law on labor's side by confronting uh, abusive management. So. It really changed the strategy of how unions worked, and it really kind of um, brought to brought to light a lot of the the hard conditions that uh, miners had to work under. And you know, thankfully for some of the things that these folks went through way back then, today it's much safer. Not the safest job in the world. Uh, I am the son of a coal miner, but uh, you know, it's uh, we we were certainly thankful for those folks who helped keep the lights on for sure. But interesting articles, interesting history this month in Appalachia, 100 years ago, the Battle of Blair Mountain. So uh, take a quick uh, a moment or two to go look that up, do some research and reading and learn a little bit about the local history there. And uh, what a great lesson for kids to learn in school. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Appalachian Shine, the, again, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. We appreciate your time. We thank you for stopping by. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. We appreciate you, and we will see you on down the road.